Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a Sirius XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews? are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Book Club is in session. Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard Mutual Fund Group, has written a new book. It's titled Enough, The True Measures of Market Business and Life. And on a day when folks are recoiling after the Dow having dropped below 8,000 yesterday, a five-year low, we're just privileged to have Mr. Bogle in our company and addressing questions about the market conditions Let's talk about the book for a bit. The title, where does it come from? Would you tell that story? Oh, sure. I'm happy to. It's a, kind of an exciting moment. I read a little sort of a written as a sort of a open verse poem in The New Yorker about uh, three years ago, four years ago. And it was a story about uh, Kurt Vonnegut and his friend Joe Heller, the author of Catch-22. And they were going out to Shelter Island, off Long Island in New York, the kind of lifestyles of the rich and famous kind of place. And they come into the house of their of their host, a billionaire hedge fund manager. And uh, so Kurt says to Joe Heller, uh, Joe, see that guy over there, our host today? 
he made more money today, today, this single day, than you have made with every copy of Catch-22 that has ever been sold. And Catch-22, of course, was the, one of the great bestsellers of the post-World War II generation. So Joe Heller looks at Kurt and says, that's okay, because I have something he will never have. Enough. Enough. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to store that back here. Uh, and uh, I did. Uh, still able to do that for at least a couple of years. And uh, so when I was asked to give a commencement address at George Washington, uh, I'm sorry, Georgetown uh, Law School, uh, I thought that would be a good theme for these young MBAs, business school, uh, going out into the financial world. And that speech took place about a year and a half ago, right at the high of the booming financial sector. And I warned these young men and women. I said, be careful of going into a business in times less halcyon than these, uh, because any business that subtracts value from its clients is going to be in, when the, in the era that's in front of us, is going to be hoist by its own petard, a Shakespearean expression meaning roughly, if you don't know it, and probably most of you do, blown up by its own dynamite. And uh, that's what happened to the financial sector. And so it was a timely warning because the financial sector had just so overdone things that anybody could have figured out that it was going to blow up. Anybody. Even I did. On that subject, uh, the fact that we've become a, a financial, a paper economy, you wrote, over the past two centuries, our nation has moved from being an agricultural economy to a manufacturing economy to a service economy and now to a predominantly financial economy, which is not necessarily a good thing. Explain. Well, it's a bad thing because think about this for a minute, just the common sense part of it. If the stock market is kind enough to deliver, us, say, an 8% annual return, we all, all of us investors together, divide up 8%. What else is new? But we don't get 8% to keep. We have to take the cost of the financial system, the cost of acquiring those financial services, out, and we net approximately 6%. And if you compare, get out your compound interest tables when you get back down to your home or office or calculator and do 8% and 6% compound at those two rates over 50 years, let's call that an investment lifetime, and you'll find that the investor with that difference of two percentage points, ends up with a capital value at the end of 50 years uh, that is about 25% of the market's return. He gave up, uh, he, he put up, the investor put up 100% of the capital, took 100% of the risk and got 25% of the return. And the financial services sector put up 0% of the capital, took 0% of the risk and got 75% of the return. If people would only look at the long-term realities and the importance of getting the financial system cost down and way down from that $600 billion I mentioned earlier, that we'd make a lot of progress. Because as one of the chapters in the book called, we have uh, too much cost and not enough value, too much speculation, another chapter, and not enough investment, uh, too much complexity, we see that in these debt obligations, and not nearly enough simplicity. And each of these chapters, 10 and all, go too much this and not enough of that. And that's the theme of the book, all the way down to uh, too many 21st century values and not nearly enough 18th century values. So we ought to be thinking about our founding, founding fathers and Adam Smith and all the great thinkers of the 18th century a lot more than we do. I like the way that you, you write at a level that I can understand, including the discussion of rock, paper, scissors, which I used to play and, and now our sons are playing, of what significance is that childhood game to what's going on in the market? <laughs> well, it's really what, what, what went on in the previous era 
where these little dot-com companies and entrepreneurial companies would come out uh, and have a huge market capitalization. And that's what I call paper companies. Uh, it's all on paper. They don't have the capital assets. Uh, they have a good idea that maybe in this age of technology, uh, outmoded momentarily, and they go out and buy, with that paper, rock companies, companies that really make something. Uh, by far the best example of it is, and the easiest one to understand, is AOL and Time Warner. AOL was a paper company. Its stock chart went like that, and uh, just like RCA did in 1929, and of course would have done this, except they merged with Time Warner, who basically gave away the store um, because of this paper company. And that's a, lar a large measure, the problem of speculators, because they don't frankly give a damn about what's real and what's unreal. They care about nothing but the momentary precision of a price of a stock that they can transact business at, and they are speculators by and large rather than investors. There's a lot of discussion in the book enough about character or the lack of character, and you talk about the Reverend Fred Craddock. Would you tell that story? Well, the book has got a lot of pretty good stories in it, and uh, the Reverend Fred Craddock uh, is a uh, Southern minister, and he swears this story is true, by the way. Uh, he walks into the house of his niece, and there is a greyhound dog, you know, one of the track dogs, uh, and he's there, and, and Reverend Craddock finds out that the dog is going to be put to sleep, done away with, euthanized, or whatever nice words we use these days. And so he gets talking to the dog, and he says, I understand that you've given up racing. And the dog says, well, that's right. And uh, this is true, apparently. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so the Reverend Craddock says, well, tell me why. He said, look, says the dog, I don't want to talk about it. It's none of anybody's business. But Craddock presses on, and he says, are you getting too old to race? No, he said, I've never been in better shape in my life. Have you been hurt? No, I just got cleared by my, my uh, doctors to, to, to race for many more years. He said, how do you stop making money? I made a million dollars for my owner last year. Well, have you lost your enthusiasm for the chase? No, it's still right there. Then why? Why are you giving it all up? And the, uh, the greyhound dog looks at the Reverend Craddock and says, all right, I'll tell you. After all that running and running and running and running, I found out that the rabbit I was chasing wasn't real. Think about that. So it raises the question, how many of us are chasing real rabbits in our careers and lives? And uh, I confess in that chapter, it seemed to surprise uh, um, some of the critics, uh, that I wonder about my own career. And I've done my best, but I don't think we should get to my age and not have a little introspection as to whether you've made the most of your life and whether those rabbits that we chase are real. There are a lot of real rabbits out there, and uh, I think if more of us would chase them, serving the community, serving professions that do add value, uh, whether it's uh, ministers, doctors, engineers, um, builders, uh, bricklayers, people that had real value, we couldn't do without them. Plumbers, the people that do the world's work don't have to worry about that kind of thing. But the people who seem to be at the higher end of our uh, economic demographics, uh, I think should spend a little more time thinking if they're really making the best use of their life and contributing to their to their communities and, and to the, and the businesses they're in. One of the tragedies of this is that I use the word engineering. Engineers, you know, they can make airplanes and bridges and all those things that are so remarkable feats. But the most popular um, sub-component or the most popular unit of engineering schools around the world 
in the U.S. at least, the most popular course is financial engineering. Financial engineering, think about that. And that's a subtraction from value. It's different from building an, air, an airplane or different from building a bridge. You're subtracting value from society. And that's where the boom in engineering is. One presumes that will slow down because the big rewards aren't going to be in the financial business uh, for quite some time. They were just so grossly excessive, they just had to have to return, will return to kind of common sense, reasonable amounts of money for playing these games with pieces of paper. Because don't forget, if I can add one thing, uh, every time someone makes a billion dollars for himself, like some hedge fund managers have done, somebody else lost a billion dollars. Okay? There's no way around that. They're trading against each other. It's like going to Las Vegas. If you make, you know, or the racetrack, or the state lottery. You know, the people that win all those things are the state, <laughs> the, the house, whatever else it is, the handle, uh, the government. Uh, but all those gamblers together lose because of those costs. The analogy is, that's why I call Wall Street the croupiers of America. And uh, so that has to change, and it will change. But it's, it's just disturbing to me that it went this far. That distinctive voice that you hear on The Big Talker belongs to Jack Bogle. He's the founder of the Vanguard Group, a man that uh, Time Magazine said is, is one of the 100 most influential folks on the face of the earth. You were with uh, Mandela and Bono, I think, on that <laughs> yeah. list, right? Go figure. Uh, what you've just referenced, the, the, the Reverend Craddock story, which I love, and the, the Greyhound. I think I know that dog, by the way. It, <laughs> it, it's a perfect segue into something that I clipped from the New York Times last Sunday. And the Times, from time to time, will do this with the sponsorship of uh, the Templeton Foundation. They ask a difficult question. And then they solicit the views of members of academia and the leaders of the financial industry and uh, Nobel laureates and so forth. And you were featured. The question was this, does the free market corrode moral character? And in boldface uh, relative to Jack Bogle, it says, it all depends. And then you went into an explanation, which is essentially the same as what you argue in Enough. Will you give us the Note version of your answer to the question of whether the free market corrodes moral character? Okay, well, what I did in that, in that piece for the Templeton Foundation was first try and define the free market and, uh, and moral character. Interestingly enough, the, the, the ads they've been running in the Times just cover the, sort of the first one-third of everybody's uh, commentary, uh, maybe 300 words out of 1,000 or whatever we were asked to write. Uh, and uh, so I raise a question, too. Uh, do we have free market capitalism? Do we really have it? In other words, how can it corrode market uh, morals if we, don't, if we don't actually have free market capitalism? And I do not believe we do. I call it in this, in this essay uh, fettered capitalism. And I use this wonderful example uh, in the first edition of Paul Samuelson's book that I read in Princeton University in 1948 and almost flunked the course, by the way, just for the record. And uh, he said, uh, the problem with free market capitalism, Dr. Samuelson, who's still around and just got a letter from him the other day, he's 94 years old, a wise man, wonderful Nobel laureate in economics. And uh, he's, he's, he said in that very first edition of economics in 1948, his, uh, his great book, textbook, uh, he said, uh, the problem with free market capitalism, like the problem with Christianity, is it's never been tried. It's never been tried. Think about that for a minute. We have these ideals, but we don't observe them in practice. So uh, we, we have a system that where entry is restricted, where there are not uh, free competition in prices, uh, restricted entry, 
uh, and we, we simply don't have. We have something not too far from free market capitalism, but we have too many blocks in the system to be able to make that observation. So when I come to moral character, I try and define that. That's not in the Times piece. And uh, what I say is moral character is an absolute. You either have moral character and, or you don't. Uh, and uh, people don't change from one way to the other. So if we have less moral character, which I believe we have considerably less than we used to, it has to mean, by definition, that there are fewer people who hold the idea of moral character high and more people who do not hold it high, and I believe that's the case. So uh, these things come into conflict. Uh, we see it particularly in the financial system, and uh, it's, we need freer markets, but we also, of course, need some pretty heavy government regulation, at least for a while. But I would argue enlightened government regulation. And uh, I'm, I'm really quite pleased that um, President-elect Obama has apparently decided to have an economic advisory board, which presumably will include people like uh, Warren Buffett and Paul Volcker, uh, to talk directly to him about you know, what kind of regulations will work, what kind is too heavy, what kind, what kind of regulation will suppress the innovation and technology uh, and entrepreneurship that have characterized our economy, because we don't want to do that either. So it's going to be a fine line, and I think independent experts with moral character uh, can help shape the agenda. In answering the question of does the free market corrode moral character, you said, I would argue that the effect is less causal than corollary. And then skipping ahead, you, you had this data, which I really found was insightful. In the early 1950s, individuals held 92% of all U.S. stocks and institutions held just 8%. Today, individuals hold only 25% directly, while institutions, largely mutual funds and pension funds, hold 75%. But these new agents haven't behaved as agents should. Too frequently, corporations, pension managers, and mutual fund managers have put their own financial interests ahead of the interests of the principals whom they are duty-bound to represent, those 100 million families who are the owners of our mutual funds and the beneficiaries of our pension plans. Same argument that you make in Enough. Yeah, I, I, it's one of the uh, least observed, as far as I can tell, least observed and most dangerous trends, uh, or most unfortunate trends, of our modern age, and that is the shift from individual investors who are quite capable of looking after their own interests up to a point, uh, and, and institutional investors who are also capable of looking after their own interests up to a point. And, uh, you know, people that run money in, in this business, by and large, would never run their own money the way a mutual fund manager, for example, would never have 150% or 100% turnover per year in the portfolio, in part because it's so tax inefficient, uh, but they do it for their clients, uh, the mutual fund shareholders and the pension shareholders. And in the mutual fund case, it's a taxable event. In the other case, it's just the cost of trading. So um, we have to, I think, and I'm recommending this. I was asked to make some recommendations uh, to the new administration. I don't know if they'll ever get to them or not. But I think we have to have as a subtext to all that goes on in regulation a legal requirement that fiduciaries behave as fiduciaries. And everybody says we don't need that. We already have fiduciary duty. Well, if, it, if we have it, it's certainly not observed in a very good way and an inadequate way. And I think we need a federal statute of fiduciary duty, which would then bring financial institutions into, for example, voting the proxies that they have of corporations. These institutional investors exercise, they own 75% of all stocks, and they exercise almost no control and don't seem to care 
about the whether the corporation is being run in the interest of shareholders or in the interest of management. So that's a big step. It's one that's gotten no public attention. I mean, I think sometimes I think, Michael, I'm the only one that talks about it. And uh, that's not going to stop me from continuing to talk about it. Believe me. Another question from our, our live audience of, of 500 here at the Union League of Philadelphia for Jack Bogle. Will foreign markets lag any U.S. recovery? Well, that's really a good question because we've gone through a period where many, many advisors and fund managers and pension managers have argued that you should all have a substantial foreign holding, a non-U.S. holdings of non-U.S. stocks because they are not well correlated with U.S. stocks. So when one goes up, the other goes down kind of thing. That turns out to be absolutely false and based on a faulty premise. And that is when we look at alternative investments like foreign stocks or private capital or commodities, uh, we look backward. And if it's done well, we say, you need this for diversification purposes. Uh, not the truth, which is you need this because I didn't have any before and it's gone way up and you better jump on the bandwagon. That's in the, the essential nature of those responses. So what do we have here? We have in the U.S. the best performing stock market in the world right now. It's off 45%. Developed countries internationally are off 55%. Emerging markets are off 65%. So it didn't work. Uh, there's an old saying in this business, um, diversify, international diversification lets us down just when we need it the most. And that is when markets go down and you need this diversification, this lack of correlation, uh, you get uh, a magnified uh, correlation with the market. So uh, I, I think uh, no one can predict the recovery. I mean, I would guess the emerging markets would come around and do well, but there's going to be a lot of pain in the emerging markets. I mean, their biggest customer, that is to say us in the U.S., uh, are um, hurting, and that's going to hurt them. So uh, I, I couldn't predict a stock market recovery. Uh, I think their, their recession, or serious recession even, uh, will probably outlast ours by a few months. And I look at our recession, and again, serious recession, not just one of these trivial things we've had to deal with for most of the last 50 years. Uh, I don't see a depression, but I do see the recession. Probably going to take another year and a half to two years to get through. But I quickly add that the market will anticipate that long before that bottom comes. So I'm not that bearish about the market itself. Jack, if I can get one more in before the break, it's, it's this. Do you think that not bailing out Lehman Brothers has created much of this mess? Well, you know, I think everybody is having second thoughts about Lehman Brothers because I don't think, I mean, first there's those terrible so-called moral hazard problem. You, you privatize the rewards of investing and socialize the risks of investing to, to all of us. So the private side gets the money, which seems totally wrong, and we pay the price. And, you know, that's called moral hazard, and, and it's not very attractive. But I don't think we realize the incredible interconnectedness of this system. Uh, with everybody owing everybody else money, two sides of each credit default swap, and those credit default swaps uh, basically betting on whether a bond can pay its interest over the subsequent five years, uh, totaled something like $62 trillion. Our gross domestic product is around probably now $13 trillion, if just to put it in perspective. And uh, those bets are made on about $2 trillion worth of bonds. There's 30 times as much speculation or whether those bonds will make it or not, half on each side, of course. Uh, and uh, it's uh, just an, uh, an obscene kind of an abuse uh, of gambling finding its way, the casino uh, finding its way into 
the investment markets. And that's why I keep talking about too much speculation and not enough investment. We've got to go back through the fiduciary duty idea, whatever it might be, to a society focused on investment, the wisdom of long-term investing, and not the folly of short-term speculation. A couple of remaining questions for Mr. Burgle. First of all, thank you so much because you've been so kind with your time to me over a long time period, not only this morning. And it's, it's getting to be almost an annual or semi-annual event where you publish a great book and, and I invite you and, and you, you come and, uh, and regale us with insight. So let, let's make the date right now to do it again next year, if not sooner. But our door is always open to you and we're honored by your presence. Do I have to write another book to get back? No, you do not. Most do, but I, you I, do not. Yeah, I will, I will do that. No, you always have something interesting to say. And, 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 and if you weren't a financial guru, you should be a talk show host because you have the pipes. Michael Pipes. Klein walked in and he said, uh, you, you could read the phone book and he would listen in his car. And I feel the same way about you. Quick question. What do you think of Mayor Bloomberg? Is he the economic guru that some people say he is? Well, Michael Bloomberg is a non-politician in a political job, which I think is a huge plus. Uh, he's uh, smart. He's wise. He knows the modern era in terms of technology. Uh, and I give him all that freely and I'm a great admirer of his. Uh, is he an economic guru? No, there are no economic gurus. Uh, I'm not an economic guru, and I'm probably rated pretty pretty high up that scale. So kind of take what we all say with a grain of salt. We're doing our best. <laughs> all right. Who do you trust at this point? Well, start out, to start out with the obvious. Uh, I have come to trust more than anything else in this last three weeks the American electorate. Uh, I think the election was a landmark in the history of this great country. I think it's going to be a landmark that's going to be celebrated 100 years from now. You can't say that about a lot. People will have, I'm sure, long since forgotten what went on in the stock market in 2008 compared to what went on in our nation. So I trust Barack Obama. I will say that I don't think any of us really know what kind of a president it will be, but I don't think we ever know what kind of a president a given individual will be. I also trust in the financial world Warren Buffett. He just, it's not that he has more brains than any of us, although he probably does, uh, but that he says what he believes. He says what he believes. And I trust Paul Volcker, who not only says what he believes, but acts the way he believes. And he frankly doesn't give a damn what anybody else thinks. Uh, he's smart. He knows the banking system. And while he's even older than I am, it's hard to believe, uh, two years older, two years ahead of me at Princeton, uh, and uh, I trust him. Uh, my trust list then diminishes a good bit. Uh, the people that get the headlines don't do a lot for me. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of I'm vaguely amused by uh, the, great, the great splash for Ted Turner, who seems like a very nice, humorous man with his own agenda and his own wallet, which is large. Uh, but uh, I'll, I think I'll just stop at those three. Well, but expand on, on your assessment of Obama, because... You came in before the election and, and you, you tipped your hand in that regard. And I put a lot of weight on what you said because I don't understand the market. You do. And I thought that the fact that you had confidence in, in Senator Obama it told me a great deal. Why do you have that comfortable feeling with him relative to the issues that we've now spent uh, an hour and a half discussing? It's much more, I think, Michael, character uh, and judgment and temperament than any specific program he has. I mean, we all, all have our policy platforms out there, the Republicans and the Democrats, and there are great disagreements within each group, too. Uh, and, uh, so, and, and, and it's very difficult to get anything done 
meaningfully in Washington these days. So some of the programs that he feels very strongly about will get adopted and some will not get adopted. So I think basically it's looking at character and temperament. Does he have the character and temperament? We used to use the phrase presidential timber. Uh, we haven't heard that for a long time, uh, but I use it a lot because that's what I look for in a president. Because I think the biggest job the president of the United States coming in will have is to give us some kind of hope, some kind of confidence uh, that a strong intellect with, a, with an even temperament uh, and an ability to deal with crises as they come up, and they will, uh, is what we need if we're going to restore that confidence. You know, the financial system operates because we all have the wherewithal to spend. We all know that. If you have no money, you can't spend anything. But it also operates on confidence. If we have the wherewithal to spend and not the confidence to spend, we might as well not have the wherewithal. So I think he has an ability to, to inspire pretty much across the board, if you look at the polls, uh, pretty much across the board in the nation, to inspire us to do better ourselves. You know, these problems are going to be solved not by any particular individual, but by all of us together. Everybody must know that. If the American citizenry responds, this, is, this country will return to its previous great, greatness and come out of this slough of despond that we're in right now. And uh, I think he has the ability to draw on that character. A final question from an audience member, and I, I think it's a terrific one. Mr. Bogle writes, Jim, at what point does it no longer make sense to stay the course? Well, I'll give you a paradoxical answer to that. The time to give up staying the course is when this market at last reaches an all-time low. Then get out of all your stocks because it's so bearish, the atmosphere is so terrible. So don't stay the course. Get out of the market, put everything in a money market fund, and get 1.5% for the next 10 years. It must be obvious that that's an insane strategy. Uh, you know, we all want to get into the market at an all-time high, and we all want to get out of the market at an all-time low, uh, simply because we're, as human beings, have this fa failing of thinking when stocks are going up, they will go up forever, and that does not happen. And when stocks go down, they will go down forever. And, of course, that doesn't happen either. So I'd say if you get your asset allocation right, always stay the course. Never give up that. But that means a safety component in there. And it also means, if I can just give you one important thing. I've talked sure. a lot about future market returns in the stock and bond markets, say maybe 8 or 9% uh, for stocks and maybe 5% for bonds. And those are probabilities. I've talked about book value relative to price. I've talked about dividend yields and earnings growth. All those things I'm giving you are probabilities. But every one of us has to think not only about the probabilities of what will happen in the future and make up our own judgment, but also the consequences to us. And this is, I can't remember if it's in the book or not, but it's sort of like uh, Pascal's uh, wager. Uh, the great philosopher Pascal uh, said, uh, you can either bet God exists or God doesn't exist. And if you bet God exists and live a God-fearing life and you're wrong, the consequences to you are nothing. You know, you've lived a wonderful life and there is no God and that's just too bad. But supposing you bet that God doesn't exist and live this dissolute life, stealing from people, hurting people, and you find out when you go to your reward that, yes, God exists and you have tragic consequences. <laughs> so if you can't, if you cannot lose another penny in the stock market, you have to get out if you cannot afford to. For example, if you're on margin. Uh, or if you can't see our, your estate drop a little bit, you have to get out. And that's the consequence. Uh, the probabilities may be small, and it's a good time to do it. But if the consequences to you are dire, you just have to do it. But for just about everybody, I'd continue your normal investment program. Make sure you have an anchor to windward in, in the form of bonds, uh, some dry powder, whatever you want to call it. 
And uh, it's, I think, never a good idea to be all in the stock market or all out of the stock market. And so just use that kind of rule of thumb I gave, saying, uh, you know, your bond position has some uh, general relationship, depending on circumstances, to your age, which means it's quite profitable to be old at this stage of the game. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the only advantage (laughs) under the sun. So I, I think that's my advice. On that note, we thank Jack Bogle for returning to Book Club. Thank you so much, sir. It's an honor. Thank you. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. We could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere. The way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would. Or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1-Series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.